the Department of Homeland Security, the ideal authoritarian tool. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. Well, it took longer than I thought it would, being a purely amateur student of history. When the name of the new Federal Department of Homeland Security was announced, I felt a shudder. Here we already had a vast military composed of Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and Coast Guard already in existence, and they were, to my astonishment, apparently powerless against actual attacks September 11th. So a new department had to come into existence with an ominous title. A new military department clearly and intentionally open-ended and undefined with who knows what kind of powers... This would not go well for a democratic republic, I thought. Homeland Security struck me as one of those catch-all, open-ended, bureaucratic buckets, which sounded an awful lot like alleged security forces found in the types of governments we have defeated in past wars. We've seen the results in militaristic nighttime invasions of American cities like Portland recently, secret federal police swarming our streets, swooping in, grabbing people, beating them, throwing them in vans without being answerable to legitimate local police or governments. Who is this Department of Homeland Security? How much of a threat to peace and civilian government have they turned out to be? In the wake of the systemic racist police violence, as exemplified by the killing of George Floyd and so many others, there have been righteous and massive protests. Americans The vast majority, I believe, are fed up with the killings of unarmed black citizens. So what does the federal government do? Well, they unleash heavily armed troops on protesters throughout America. What is the Department of Homeland Security's mission? How did we get here? And what can we do about it? Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Live is Melvin Goodman, whose article in Counterpunch is titled The Department of Homeland Security, The Ideal authoritarian tool. Yeah. Melvin Goodman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bart. It's good to be with you. Melvin A. Goodman is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a professor of government at Johns Hopkins University. A former CIA analyst, Goodman is the author of Failure of Intelligence, The Decline and Fall of the CIA and National Insecurity, The Cost of American Militarism, and A Whistleblower, at the CIA. His most recent book is American Carnage, The Wars of Donald Trump, and he is author of the forthcoming The Dangerous National Security State. Goodman is the national security columnist for counterpunch.org, which I highly recommend. Well, again, thanks for being with us. The attacks of September 11th have had many unpredictable, unforeseen Effects. It sparked the rise of something people familiar with such things refer to as a national security state. Defining terms, I think, is always a good way to start a show. As a former CIA analyst, you are in a rare position of knowledge and expertise to tell listeners what it means, a national security state, as compared to a democratic republic. Could you help us out with that, please? Yes. To me, the national security state is what uh, is formed when the emphasis is on the military and military policy, and I would think uh, the very great danger of militarism. 
the United States is probably the only country in the world that uses its military not to defend its borders and to defend its people, which is, of course, legitimate, but essentially to carry out its foreign policy. So when you look at what we've done since the end of World War II in terms of expanding our military presence around the world, uh, there may be 700 to 800 military facilities, uh, bases, you know, huge, huge bases and yeah. various facilities and access rights that we have. And then when you uh, look at the fact that there's no country in the world that has maybe more than one or two, China has one facility outside of its uh, own borders, and that's in Djibouti. And we encourage that because it's involved in the fight against piracy. And when you look at Russia, the only two facilities they have outside of the uh, former Soviet space would be in Syria, access to an air facility and a naval facility. But we're everywhere with several hundred thousand troops. Then when you look at what we spend for defense, the mainstream media always uh, states that we spend as much as seven or maybe the next 11 countries in the world. Well, that's not true. Uh, when I do the numbers, I add in only the bu- not only the budget of the Pentagon, which is about right. seven hundred billion dollars, but you have to add in the ba- the budget of Homeland Security, a good part of it, and that's uh, $90 billion. The Veterans Administration, which is the second largest uh, bureaucratic entity in Washington, Homeland Security is number three. You have to add in the intelligence community budget of $70 billion because about 80 to 85 percent of that budget is really for military intelligence and supporting uh, the warfighter. And you have to add in part of the Energy Department's budget because yeah. they control nuclear weapons and nuclear uh, technology. So when you add in all that, we're way over a trillion dollars, which means we spend more than the rest of the world spends on the military. Then you have to look at the role of the military in the conceptualization and implementation of foreign policy. Uh, I think it started with Obama when he put too many military people uh into the government, into sensitive positions that civilians should have held. Uh, But certainly under Trump, who turned to the military, of course the military turned out to be the moderates in the administration, who knew that was going to happen? (laughs) But you have the military involved in these civilian positions where the conceptualization of foreign policy and national security policy is very important. And then when you think of what Trump uh, has really demolished Uh, in his uh, one term, and particularly over the last two years, and that is the important role of arms control and disarmament, which had a chance, or gave us a chance, to control the defense spending. But he wants to spend over a trillion dollars over the next decade or so to modernize nuclear weapons that have no utilitarian value whatsoever. So when I talk about the national security state, I talk about a state that's denying funding, denying appropriations to every department, every agency of government except the military agency, the intelligence uh, community, and of course if you look at the $90 billion Homeland Security uh, budget where 240,000 people uh, are employed. So that that's this dangerous national security state that needs to be contained. And unfortunately, what we've seen, particularly over the past several years, is bipartisan support yes. for this huge funded spending. We don't see enough challenge to this national security uh, state. I'm hoping that Biden and Harris will address this, but frankly, yeah. they have so much to do in terms of rebuilding and rehabilitation. I don't know if that can be high on the list, but it should be. So many things should be high on the list. And, uh, you know, we're talking about national security state here. And talk about the job of the military 
there used to, I mean, there's been the State Department, which is theoretically supposed to do foreign policy, but that's been pretty much uh, emasculated and, and the military is, is taken over that. But what about defending America? How is it that three of the four hijacked commercial jets enjoyed total success in taking down their targets? Isn't the whole reason we have a Defense Department to defend our homeland against acts of, acts of war. Why do we need? Why did we need another military department, the Homeland Security uh, Department? Well, uh, to be fair, uh, we certainly didn't need it. Uh, George W. Bush didn't want it. Uh, I blame two senators, Joe Lieberman, the Democrat from Connecticut, and of course John McCain, the Republican uh, from Arizona. And I think because of the 9/11 factor and the intimidation factor, people were afraid to vote against the Iraq War in 2003, and they were certainly uh, fearful of voting against Homeland Security. But as you said at the outset, you know, when I think of Homeland Security, uh, the uh, the homeland, I think of Germany, I think of fascism, uh, I think of the the Nazi movement in the 1930s. And when I think of Homeland Security, I think of the Interior Ministry, and my major area of study, of course, is the communist world. And it's like the kind of interior ministry you would find in communist regimes, not only the Soviet regime, but throughout uh, Eastern Europe. So when you add in the fact that this is a bureaucratic conglomeration uh, that took various uh, departments and agencies, maybe about 20 or 22 different uh, departments and functions, to put into this one huge umbrella organization, which means oversight gets channeled into too many different congressional committees, and mm. as a result, there's very little oversight uh, of Homeland Security. Now, Homeland, uh, I mean, oversight itself has declined in recent years, and again, Obama was part of this because yeah. he compromised the inspector general of the CIA, and, and if you look at what Trump has done since April, he's removed uh, five important inspectors general, several in the national security field, intelligence, State Department, and the military. So oversight uh, has been compromised. The whole idea of accountability in government, which is so important, which Biden and Harris will have to address immediately, uh, hopefully in in January, Mm. Uh, this is incredibly uh, damaging. So you even have national security professionals, someone like Richard Clark, uh, who's very conservative, who has served various administrations, very active under George Bush, uh, was sort of an assistant secretary for uh, the problem of counterterrorism. He's come out in favor of dismantling the Department of Homeland Security. And two former directors, at least two former directors, uh, Tom Ridge, the first director, uh, has referred to Homeland Security as the president's personal militia. Right. And Michael Turkoff, who succeeded him, talked about the damage that's been done to the department, particularly uh, in the event you cited in, in Portland, where you have unidentified uh, paramilitary forces, essentially, and running, riding around in unmarked vans, taking people to unknown uh, locations with uh, no charges. <laughs> you know, we know nothing about what happened. And I think of what also happened uh, in Washington, since that's my home, uh-huh. uh, in the first at the St. John's oh. Episcopal Church, where you had helicopters uh, creating downdrafts to intimidate peaceful protesters. That's a technique that the military used in places like Iraq to go after uh, insurgents and to go after terrorist movements in Islamic State. Uh, There's a tactic that was used against their own people. And to me, there's not enough pushback 
uh, certainly from the Congress, which has been, uh, I think, too uh, conciliatory, too benign toward this president, maybe because there's so much to attack. Hmm. But in the age of the pandemic, you can't uh, have a center of uh, activity, a center of protests. The, the, the uh, interrogations and hearings just don't have the same impact that they would if they could be located uh, on the Hill. So too much has changed, and, and this new normal, I think, yeah. is quite frightening. Uh, and the sooner we can shutter the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the, the sooner we can get back to values that we used to respect. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, and, and that some people have considered me a liberal, but I think what you're talking about there, that's real conservatism, conserving... That's conservative thinking, really. Absolutely. Yep. Conserving what we value, conserving our traditional uh, rights and liberties and the Constitution. And, so, you know, for these far-right wingers who are basically uh, uh, copying a lot of the communist techniques, you know, like Stalinist even, you know, like the Interior Ministry, using the military against their own people. It just, that is not conservatism, no matter, I just, it amazes me. Now, you write that in the wake of 9-11... The Bush administration made a series of blunders that have created havoc in the U.S. governance. End of quote. I doubt anyone except perhaps Cheney and the Saudis would disagree that, as you say, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was the worst of these decisions. No question there was no tie between Iraq and the hijackers. The term homeland security, very appealing. Who wants to vote against homeland security? We all want a safe place to live. I... I I can't recall uh, President Bush's argument for how invading and attacking a sovereign nation unrelated to September 11th would enhance our homeland security. Was there an argument that this was for homeland security? And if so, in what ways did this pretend further abuse of the term homeland security? Well, I've, I, for the book that I did on uh, a national um, defense and the, the cost of uh, American militarism, uh, I read all of the memoirs, all of the uh, first-person accounts of the people who were involved in the decision-making, and there was never a case put for uh, protecting American national security. Uh, the case that was made was, was based on total disinformation, uh, some things that were cut out of whole cloth, you know, just uh, intelligence that was uh, creatively, uh, essentially made up. Uh, and all of the allegations that Colin Powell used at the United Nations in February right. of 2003, only six weeks before the invasion, uh, every one of them was false. Uh, so you have an intelligence agency, the CIA, uh, under the leadership of George Tenet, who told the president it would be a slam dunk mm -hmm. to give you the intelligence you need to take the American people. You know, this wasn't intelligence that Bush wanted for himself. He made up his mind with regard to Iraq before 9-11. Uh, Paul O'Neill, the former Secretary of the Treasury, uh, documented this in his memoir that people didn't pay sufficient attention to. Mm. This is something that Bush came into office to do. And I don't know if it was because he wanted to avenge uh, the so-called uh, threat that was made against his father by Saddam Hussein, right. or he wanted to show his father, and uh, maybe this is too Freudian. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah I know where you're going. He wanted to show his father, I can do something you didn't do in terms of getting Saddam Hussein, because uh, George H.W. Bush didn't go that far. 
And not only can I do this, but I'll do what you couldn't do, which is to get reelected. So this is something that mm. uh, Bush wanted to do from day one, and 9-11 gave him that opportunity to corner uh, Richard Clark, the same individual I mentioned before, to say, we know Iraq was involved in this, and Clark did his best to disabuse him of that mm. and had no luck uh, whatsoever. So Bush wanted this war, and then to justify it, which is what uh, – most American presidents do to justify military exploits. Uh, they said it was done in the name of democracy. We were going to create Iraq as a model democratic state in the Middle East. It would become a paradigm for the entire region of the, uh, of the Middle East. And this was an idea, actually, that Paul Wolfowitz seemed yeah. to believe, was the undersecretary of mm. defense at the time. Uh, someone I had talked to, he came over to the National War College when I was on the faculty there. And he really believed in this uh, making the world safe for democracy in the Middle East. No one else did. And no one really organized this uh, invasion to stay around to build uh, a nation. Mm-hmm. We, we got, I was at the War College. We got classified briefings from the Pentagon before the war started. Uh, and we were told um, at the highest level that that military force was going to do its job in a matter of weeks and stay there for a matter of months, and then we withdraw, leaving a, a, an effective government behind. We weren't prepared to do anything to create that government or to build that government. Uh, and we left chaos behind. Look at Iraq now. Yeah. Look at uh, Libya in the wake of the use of the military force there in, in 2011. Um, Wherever the military has gone, whether it's ours or the Israeli military in Lebanon, for example, if you want to look at the chaos Lebanon has been for the last 30, 40 years. Look at the Israeli invasion in 1983 when Sharon went all the way to Beirut. So you have to think about the use of the military in terms of, of creating uh, total disarray. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an elegant instrument uh, for political change. It has one purpose, which is to defeat the enemy, but you have to have an enemy. Uh, you can't create one, and that's exactly what George <laughs> Bush did. He he created uh, an enemy that we didn't have. Amazing. I remember at the time people thinking, yeah, we're getting back at them. And, of course, it had nothing to do with getting back at them. And, and as you say, national security, I, it, it, that was really a stretch to, to somehow – uh, just try to justify it in terms of national security. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Live. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody. Our guest today is Melvin Goodman, who has an article in Counterpunch titled The Department of Homeland Security, the Ideal Authoritarian Tool. You describe the Department of Homeland Security as a, quote, bureaucratic monstrosity. Why do you say that? What is it? How big is it? Well, it's, uh, as I said, the third biggest uh, agency, only the Defense Department and the Veterans Administration. How many people? Uh, 240,000. Wow. <laughs> you can believe that. Wow. And when you break down the various uh, agencies, which I didn't get into in the piece because it would take up too much uh, space, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are agencies there from Treasury, from Justice, from uh, the Pentagon, from Agriculture, from Health and Human Services, from... Uh, energy, justice, uh, even the, the General Services uh, Administration, and then you add in the Coast Guard. Um, so there, there, there's such incredible diversity that these components don't adhere in any way, and conducting oversight, as I mentioned, right. is an impossible task, and I don't think the Congress even tries. And what, 
worries me the most is when you think about the the policing functions yes. of Homeland Security, the paramilitary thing. They took out of the Treasury Department the Customs Service, and they took out of the Justice Department the Immigration and Naturalization Service. So instead of honoring these two important functions in, in terms of law and custom and democratic governance, these two problems of customs and immigration became national security problems, and they're treated like national security problems. And that's, to me, how you ended up uh, with the Portland uh, disaster. Uh, this became a national security problem that only the federal government could handle. And when you add in what's happened on the uh, border in terms of separating children from mm. their parents, mm. uh, a tragedy that the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties right. Union, fighting for the last uh, several years. But I remember when the Congress did investigations and they found that Department of Homeland Security was involved in mail openings, that they were uh, conducting reconnaissance of Islamic communities in the United States. And it reminded me of what happened during the Vietnam War when you had COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program uh, run by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. But mm -hmm. you had every intelligence agency was involved in this. CIA, uh, where I spent 24 years, they were involved in something called Operation Chaos. So even though I was involved in the anti-war movement and marched in the anti-war movement as a CIA analyst, I had my picture being taken by, by CIA intelligence officers and FBI officers as I was involved in, in the march to the Pentagon, uh, ah, for example. October 67, so yeah. intelligence agencies have been abused in one way or another. And that culminates in what the National Security Agency was involved in, in terms of the massive surveillance that was exposed by uh, Edward Snowden, uh, who left the country in order to reveal all of this material. He never would have been able to get away with this if he had remained in the United States. That's why uh, liberal writers infuriate me when they said that Snowden should have stayed in this country and fought the constitutional battle. Well, there would have been no constitutional battle. Uh, Obama or someone else would have used the Espionage Act, and, and Snowden would be in jail for the rest of his life. And it's kind of ironic when Obama's uh, Attorney General, Eric Holder, left government after the Obama administration finished its second term. He referred to Snowden as a public servant. Uh, so you have to put uh, Snowden in this category of someone who's been trying to expose the ills of the uh, national security state, and there's very little of that. The people who do that are labeled contrarians or dissidents, and it's very hard, at least yeah. in my experience as a contrarian, uh, to get your word out there, particularly into the mainstream media. You know, we count on podcasts such as yours or... Uh, the great job that they do with Counterpunch and allowing yes. dissidents to have their voice. Yes. Uh, radio, talk radio does a very good uh, job of this, but the mainstream media has a long way to go uh, to allow contrarians to get in their point of view. Yeah, for sure. And if you think about Homeland Security, what, what we want, what we want that to mean is our homes to be secure. And if you think about uh, uh, Edward Snowden, here he was sticking his neck out there quite literally uh, to, to to protect us from uh, a, a invasive government, from you know people like the uh, the troops, the uh, secret police that came into uh, to Portland, and the snooping and things like that. It, I, I think one could argue that that uh, uh, Edward Snowden has done more for real. National security, not maybe not 
you know, like nationalism like we have nowadays by Barr and uh, Trump, but for homeland security, for, for, you know, keeping us secure from Soviet-type interior ministries and, and, and you know, awful uh, bureaucracies like that that uh, spy on us and can throw us into jail, things like that. You know, again, it's, it's a, interesting that only uh, several years after Snowden made these revelations, if you go to Portland, look at what the Department of Homeland Security was doing in monitoring the conversations of journalists, uh, monitoring the conversations of protesters. They they knew where these protest movements were going to take place because they were obviously listening to their cell phones. So you think of that as the same kind of surveillance that the National Security Agency was doing that require rewriting of the Patriots Act and led to some changes in laws and regulations, even though I think there is still too much surveillance of American citizens. But here was the Department of Homeland Security thinking that it could do this uh, without any pushback whatsoever. And if you also look at the leadership of Homeland Security, it had four directors in four years. Mm -hmm. uh, Chad Wolf yeah. is at cat's paw to uh, Donald Trump. He hasn't been confirmed. And if you look at Trump's policies within the government in terms of so many uh, acting directors of this agency or that department, that's circumventing the Constitution, which gives the right of advising consent to the Senate, but they don't get that opportunity to provide uh, consent because acting directors are named. And Chad Wolf is just to me the poster child uh, for what's wrong with the personnel policy uh, of the Trump administration. Again, something else that a Biden administration will have to deal with. It's a long list. It certainly is a long list, and it, it gets longer every day. And you're reminding me of my own history when uh, there was May Day, 1971, a protest against the war in Vietnam. And we had different target areas that different people were going to sit down in the streets and theoretically block up the city for for one day to block up the center of the war machine. Well, the police knew our uh, our you know actions far better than any of us did. I don't know; they didn't have a Department of Homeland Security then, but they had something that was keeping tabs on us. That's for sure. So it's it's a long and sort of ugly tradition, I, I must say. Now you say that. Uh, you know, there's there's law enforcement within this massive bureaucracy. Department of Homeland Security law enforcement officers represent half of all federal law enforcement agencies in government. So if Department of Homeland Security troops are law enforcement agents, who do they answer to? Is there any legal oversight at all? I mean, and how does that compare with other law enforcement agencies? Well, when you look at law enforcement, uh, Department of Homeland Security has 60,000 law enforcement officers. And as you say, that's half of all the law enforcement officers uh, in the government. And when you look at the, de the uh, decline of oversight and accountability, uh, yeah, it begs all sorts of questions of, of who is monitoring this group, who is uh, conducting verification of this group. Now, you know they have an intelligence bureau, uh, something they call an Office of uh, Intelligence and Analysis, that has been cherry-picking intelligence to make worst-case assessments. Uh, and that has enabled people like Attorney General William Barr to uh, target Antifa uh, for the problems in Portland. We don't, we don't know if Antifa was really involved in Portland. We don't even know what Antifa is and what kind of organizations... Right. It really is, or is it even something you could call an organization? And how many people does it have? Uh, and has, has this become 
the leverage point for using these paramilitary yes. troops in all situations. And I think Trump, who's probably the most transparent president we've had in so many ways, when he talks mm-hmm. about targeting cities where they have liberal Democratic mayors, uh, he's made it quite clear that this is an exercise in politicization, uh, just as what we're seeing being played out against the post office that will have yes. an impact on the election. Or the Census Bureau, you know, one of the oldest functions of the government. The first census in this country was done in 1790. And now we're seeing politicization of, of the census and a sentence that's being cut short in terms of investigation, which will also harm uh, representation oh, of right. urban areas. So th- there is an, a, an aspect of government uh, in which he hasn't followed what Steve Bannon presented to him in 2016, the deconstruction of the administrative state. Uh, we have seen this deconstruction. And he's done it in such a rigorous and methodical fashion that no one is focused on any one aspect of it. So if you look in the environmental area, look at all mm. the environmental regulations uh, that have been uh, torn Just, up yeah. or, or are about to be torn up. So, uh, the New York Times study identified more than 90 environmental regulations. And frankly, I find of all of the things Trump has done, along with the separation of children from their uh, families. Right. It's this evil design of an ending environmental regulations when you're fighting a pandemic that is essentially a respiratory ailment that attacks the lungs. So he, to me, he's an accomplice when you look at the tens of thousands of deaths uh, that have taken place, uh, many of them unnecessary yeah. if we had had a real national program or federal program to deal with this. But to me, the Department of Homeland Security is sort of the, the, the model for all of this because it's such a huge organization with so many uh, moving parts mm. that isn't being monitored, that isn't getting uh, oversight, and has become part of the national security uh, state. And we know from Katrina in 2005 what a disaster FEMA was. And you have to wonder, well, how much harm has been done to the Coast Guard, which also has to report to the Department of Homeland uh, security has that mm. function uh, been tested, and then as I mentioned earlier, when mm. you look at immigration and naturalization, yeah. even that has become a national uh, security problem. So, uh, no matter where you look in terms of uh, homeland security, you do see an authoritarian tool that essentially gives uh, the president sort of uh, a loaded weapon in the Oval Office that he can discharge at any time, and he certainly chose to do it in, in Portland. Wow. Yeah, great. How wonderful. Uh, it, who, who would have imagined that? That's not what I imagined for the... Tw- this is a classic sort of uh, Frankenstein creation is what we have here. <laughs> totally disjointed, uh, and it's something that needs to be dealt with. <laughs> something that needs to be dealt with. Yes, indeed. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Melvin Goodman, who is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, professor of government at Johns Hopkins University, a former CIA analyst. And he's written a piece in Counterpunch titled The Department of Homeland Security, the Ideal Authoritarian Tool. And so many things have been lumped under that. And as you say, there's like virtually no oversight whatsoever. It's just this, uh, as you say, many moving parts. I find it fascinating that, you know, immigration and border protection, we used to be, you know, give me your tired, your poor, etc. Those days are gone. To 
trend to to make immigrants fleeing, you know, drug gangs and violent repressive governments uh, make them a, a national security issue. I can't help but think it has something to do with the fact that they are not pure white. They are largely brown people who speak a different uh, language. Where, immigration and border protection, how much did they change uh, when they were put under uh, Department, of, De- Department of Homeland Security? Well, I think there was uh, less concern about legality and less concern with jurisprudence when they were put under Homeland Security. Yeah. Uh, because when they were in the Justice Department, I mean, that's what the Justice Department stood for. Mm. And I think there's a certain amount of, of irony here, because if you look at the problems in Central America, and you really have to go back to the 1970s and 1980s, yes. uh, these were right-wing uh, military oh. governments that were supported by our military and particularly by the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. create the kind of co- uh, chaos that was forcing uh people to leave the country. They were leaving El Salvador for safety, leaving Guatemala for safety, Honduras, uh, and coming to the United States. But it was because some of the uh, chaos and havoc in those countries we were responsible Absolutely. for. So when you look at it now, um, you have to think of the instability in Central America that we have never addressed. We have never been the good neighbor that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said we were going to be. We've always been a hegemonic power, uh, which is, to me, part of that national security state uh, Mm. uh, created. And I think, again, Trump being so transparent, he gave away the game in the first months of administration with the uh, travel ban on Muslims to show that, yeah, this this is all about racism. It had nothing to do with national security. It had nothing to do with immigration. It had to do with ethnicity. Uh, and what he did when he signed it, this was incredibly unusual, and not enough was made of this. Mm. He took that bill to the Pentagon, uh, making it clear that this was going to be a national security issue, even though standing next to him and receiving the first pen that he used to sign it was uh, General uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who was opposed to the travel ban, and Trump knew he was opposed to the travel ban. So in the first months, in terms of embarrassing the people he appointed, he certainly embarrassed uh, General Mattis, Secretary yeah. of Defense Mattis, uh, who had to go along with this policy. Uh, and then when you look at the border wall, taking money out of the uh, budget of the Pentagon uh, to fund this uh, border wall, you know, it sets up in terms of uh, when I think of Biden's first hundred days, there's so much low hanging fruit that he can address in the first hundred days. And one thing he can do is announce, stop the wall, stop the funding for the wall, stop the construction of the wall. And I don't think uh, dismantling Homeland Security will be part of this agenda because they take on so much. But I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And I count on people like, uh, well, Ron Wyden, Senator from Oregon, uh, to be um, zealous in this regard, or someone like Adam Schiff uh, in, in the House who's aware of these national security problems, uh, judging from their own statements. Uh, But this is part of that overall national security state problem, uh, because Homeland Security is the paramilitary organization for domestic matters. You have the military that fights our wars overseas, and you have Homeland Security creating wars uh, within our own borders. Um, And this is just part of the chaos of the last Hmm. four years. 
chaos. Oh, it's so much fun. But, you know, to, to translate, you know, labeling things. I mean, Trump knows ratings, 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 ratings. That's what he knows. And he didn't invent the term homeland security, that's for sure. But he got it, and it was there for the picking. I mean, you talk about low-hanging fruit. The Department, De- Department of Homeland Security, who could be against homeland security? And so it's, it's uh, used on domestic policy. It's used in foreign policy. It can be pretty much anything at all, I guess. And what, what about, I mean, domestic protests that have been... I, I, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, I may be wrong, who said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Somehow, dissent is pictured as a threat to homeland security, which, you know, we've seen other, you know, communist uh, uh, Russia, uh, uh, fascist uh, Nazi Germany. They label the others, the different people, as threats to national security. And to think that we're doing that now, uh, the, 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 what about customs and border protection? Uh, they, they, do they used to be more independent? And do they, they don't have any authority when it comes to domestic protests, do they? The customs and border protection? Or do they? No, that's not their function. But when he needed to send law enforcement officers out there uh, to Portland, and they were unidentified. They had no markings. No, their names weren't uh, uh, placed no. on their forms, and their agencies, their parent agencies, weren't uh, listed. But some of these were from, you know, the, the border police. This was this was uh, sort of a paramilitary group that was deployed in in Portland against American citizens. And it goes back to, and and I regret that I have to bring Obama into this conversation so no, much, but it's. But unfortunately, a lot of the damage was done in the Obama administration, the misuse of the Espionage Act, and then the idea that people who leak or legitimate whistleblowers are really threats to the state. Right. Uh, because when you look at people like Thomas Drake, who was a contractor mm-hmm. with the agency, um, who did everything right in terms of whistleblowing and was still faced with the Espionage Act, that's why Edward Snowden went abroad. I'm convinced of that. He knew he was... Uh, not going to be able to release this, these documents if he stayed in the United States. And the idea that Obama had is that whistleblowers were a threat to the society. People who leak are a threat to uh, the society. Uh, and my problem has always been that the press has not been very generous yes. in dealing with this. Uh, you know, someone like Chelsea Manning oh, I know. Uh, was described as a cross-dressing Little Red Riding Hood by Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post, who's the deputy editor of the editorial page and is a so-called liberal. Mm. Uh, Richard Stone went after um, Edward Snowden. Uh, David Ignatius, a uh, national security writer, referred to Snowden as an intelligence defector. Not He wouldn't even call him uh, oh, a power. Uh, and again, when Holder left uh, the Department of Justice, then he conceded that Snowden was a public servant. He he exposed illegality that was not only illegal, it was unconstitutional. Yes. Uh, it was a violation uh, regarding illegal searches and seizures, and that's what Snowden was dealing with. Now, he compl- complicated his case because he re- released so many documents that had nothing to do uh, with searches and, and seizures uh, that it created a very difficult case for the government uh, to deal with. 
and it, it's a factor in trying to defend Snowden. But the fact is, in terms of the central element of his revelations, uh, this was unconstitutional behavior by the National Security Agency, which was uh, an agency that had been doing uh, this kind of thing in the 1960s and 1970s yes. during the Vietnam War. When you look at uh, uh, telephone taps, uh, uh, mail openings, and even the Homeland Security Department, uh, it was found out in uh, 2012 uh, that they were opening mail from foreign countries that was being delivered to American uh, citizens. Uh, more should have been made out of this uh, when the Senate Homeland Security Report on the Hill uh, referred to this activity. Um, so it's, to me, a, a lack of zeal on the part of the Congress. Uh, the Congress has become, uh, in, in many ways, mm. a order of presidential power, or what I would call imperial power. You know, the, yes. the wonderful book that Arthur Schlesinger did after the Vietnam War ah. about the danger of imperial presidency. So then you, when you put it in the hands of someone as ignorant and, in, and indifferent as Donald Trump, uh, and, and having an attorney general like uh, William Barr, who is not only his Roy Cohn, but he's also mm -hmm. his John Mitchell, you can see where the country now is threatened. Uh, when you have worries about an election, something we've prided ourselves oh. on uh, for over 200 years that's never been in doubt or never been uh, questioned, now you have to worry, what kind of an election is this going to be? And if it's not a free or fair election... You could have another situation where Trump could lose by as many as 5 million votes. He lost by 3 million votes in 2016, but still won. Uh -huh. He could lose, in terms of various calculations, by as much as 5 million votes and still win in the Electoral College. Sure. So we're not out of the woods by any means. I mean, it's very <sighs> exciting to see this Biden-Harris ticket yeah. uh, come together. I think he made a very good yeah. choice. Uh, but we've got a long way to go. We do, and you know, I th to me, I, I still uh, think of. I'm fairly optimistic about most American people. I mean, there's Trump's solid base; they ain't going to move. But most people, I think, traditionally, I mean, there've been movies made about whistleblowers, heroes. So many whistle. Americans have always loved whistleblowers, people on the inside, in the cigarette industry, in the polluting industries, things like that. And now, I, I don't know, I still, there was kind of a difference with, with Edward Snowden, for sure, that people started to think, oh, maybe he's, you know, a, a troublemaker, and, you know, he went to Russia, ooh, doesn't that uh, put a surprise on things? But, you know, if, if we look at real homeland security, having our freedoms, knowing our mail isn't going to be opened up, that our elections are free and fair. I, you know, and quite frankly, wouldn't it be logical that the health and safety of citizens being protected from a pandemic might fall under the meaning of homeland security? Your thoughts? Well, this would be a real homeland security problem, you know, in terms of uh, Poco saying, I've met the enemy and he is us. Right. Uh, we're certainly the enemy when it comes to this pandemic uh, leading the World Health Organization, huh. uh, not trying to forge cooperation in the international community, particularly uh, with uh, China, uh, withdrawing funding from third world countries that will ultimately suffer the most with this pandemic, even though it's, 
it's hard to compare any suffering to what's going on in the United States now when you look at over 160,000 deaths. I know. All that will bring the flu season and allergies along with the uh, pandemic. And I noticed the urgency of warnings from the CDC head and from uh, uh, Dr. Fauci. They know that the worst uh, is coming. And you have a, a president who's totally uh, AWOL on this one. Uh, with a task force that's essentially run by his prodigal uh, son-in-law, bringing business cronies in to arrange um, funding for developing a vaccine. Uh, Yeah, under a real administration, this is where Homeland Security uh, could have uh, an impact uh, because they they do have, uh, from Health and Human Services, they took over an organization called the National Disaster Medical System. Uh. So they have funding, they have resources that they could uh, bring to bear on this situation. But I don't think they're playing any role uh, whatsoever. And the legitimate uh, voices are not being heard. You know, when you look at the public health officials and this administration's attitudes towards science, yep. toward fact-driven uh, policy decisions, uh, we're we're in real trouble. What about the uh, Federal Protective Service that that was used in Portland, and the the allegations or the pretend whatever the cover was that they were protecting federal buildings that are doing nothing wrong, protecting federal buildings from the bad guys throwing rocks and you know setting fires and stuff like that. So who is the Federal Protective Service, and how have they been abused under Trump? Well, I think the the first abuse of the Federal Protective Service is that they went into Portland without any consultation with state and local uh, officials. Uh, And even though their mandate says that, yeah, they're protecting federal property, Mm -hmm. uh, members of the service ranged far and wide. Uh, They weren't just concerned about uh, protecting uh, buildings, protecting various uh, sites. They were patrolling the streets of of downtown Portland. And when you watch some of the uh, activity of these people, the vicious attacks on on protesters, even when the moms came out to form a line of defense between uh, the protesters and the uh, paramilitary forces, uh, they went after the moms. And they did it with an incredible anger and, and venom. So you had to be concerned about this display of force, this display of power, without any consultation with local uh, officials. Uh, He needs a national security threat. He's got to have a national security threat. I'm reminded uh, Black Panther Party arose in the 1960s, back then in reaction to systemic racist police violence, and that back then you write that FBI Director Jerry Hoover's designation of the Black Panther Party as the greatest threat to the internal security of the country is kind of reminiscent. It's like there's this alleged Antifa, and it seems to me if there weren't an Antifa, they would have to invent one. And I, you know, I, I'd be shocked if some of the right-wing, you know, Trump bar uh, monies did not get transferred to create a violent uh, faction within the alleged Antifa. And in fact, I, I saw, I got, I, I don't know why I'm on Trump's mailing list, but you know, when I that. They asked me for money. I said, well, no. They said, well, are you sure? I mean, you want violence like this? 
in America. That's what that's what uh, Biden and Harris are going to bring. So I wonder about this, you know, use of uh, Department of Homeland Security and just trumping up, if you will, uh, the creation of a domestic threat as part of uh, uh, Homeland Security. Well, in the case of J. Edgar Hoover and the Black Panther Party, at least there was a party. That's that true. He could label. Yes. There was a real Black Panther Party. In the case of Antifa, we don't know what Antifa is. Right. Uh, this could be anyone who dresses in that fashion. Yep. Uh, and I saw them when I marched in the, the science march and in the women's march uh, after uh, Trump's inauguration. There were a couple members that we pointed to, and, and, and people said, oh, they're, they're Antifa. But it, it's not a real organization. It doesn't have any right. uh, nomenclature. We don't know who its leaders are. We don't know what its philosophy is. We don't know what its policies are. There are people who are showing up, a handful of people who are po- creating havoc. What I worry about is, are some of these people uh, associated with right-wing causes no that are doing the bidding of uh, yes. Donald Trump? Yep to compromise a legitimate protest movement, because we know he's moved against legitimate, peaceful protesters. Uh, so that right of demonstration, that, that freedom of assembly, and when you think of all of your First uh, Amendment rights, they've been compromised by a Justice Department that's been heavily politicized by uh, William Barr. And I think of all of the people who uh, interrogated Barr when he came before the Congress, no. Kamala Harris was as aggressive yes. and pointed and a matter of fact as anyone uh, in showing the weakness of having, you know, someone like William Barr running uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, so this is this will have to be addressed. The politicization of that department uh, clearly has to be high on the list of uh, what needs to be rehabilitated. And I'm... It, it, it amazes me that they've been able to get away with this. The Department of Justice, I mean, you and I remember John Mitchell. He was nothing compared to this guy. Department of Justice and the Depart- Department of Homeland Security have been used on behalf of the effort to reelect Trump. That just, I mean, Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice helped, you know, being just completely directed into reelecting Trump. Aren't there constitutional protections against them? I and how can they, how can they get away with that? Well, I think the one thing again, I find it very transparent. The one thing he's done since uh, day one, it was not only Steve Bannon's deconstruction of the administrative state, which he's been very effective in carrying this out. If you look at what's happened to the Envir- Environmental Protection Agency, for example, but what he has done overall is weaponize the government uh, for his behalf. Uh, he certainly has weaponized uh, the intelligence community. Uh, the intelligence uh, that deals with things he doesn't agree with gets pushed to the side. R- Russian hacking in the 2016 election, for example, yeah. or the involvement of Mohammed bin Salman in the brutal killing yeah. of Khashoggi in the consulate in uh, Turkey, yeah. or the fact that Iran was carrying out every aspect of the Iranian nuclear accord, which was made clear to the yeah. White House before abrogated uh, that treaty, uh, the fact that North Korea was continuing its nuclear weapons programs, just all the love notes that were going mm. back and forth between Donald Trump uh, and uh, Kim Jong-un. So you have uh, Little Rocket Man and Big Rocket Man who fell in love with each other. 
uh, this intelligence that just gets pushed to the side. Then when you have someone legitimate, and I, I think of someone like uh, or Colonel Vinden, yes, who becomes to me a really a major hero yes. in all of this. And I find it's tragic that he had to resign from uh, the military because of the way the system oh, no. failed to protect him. Uh, I'll say something at least for the CIA whistleblower uh, who allowed uh, Vindman to testify, uh, given the revelations of the CIA whistleblower. At least when he went back to the CIA, he got back his old job. Yeah. And CIA Director Gina Haspel has given him security protection in terms of getting in to and from work because of the death threats against him. And, of course, these death threats are attributed right to comments that Donald Trump has made about, you know, the way we used to treat spies in this country. Mm. Mark, he made foreign service officers at the United Nations uh, in New York. Uh, the, the loathsome nature of, of this man and the loathsome nature of the people around him, whether it's Mike Pompeo at State or Bill Barr uh, at Justice, uh, or if you look at any of the cabinet officials, we have never had a government uh, that compares to this. No. And when you think the personnel policy of the president of the United States, it's one of the strongest powers, the power to appoint at least 3,000 individuals, almost 1,000 of whom have to get uh, confirmation. This is a huge power to remake the bureaucracy. And I think he's done it. I think he not only has he appointed more judges than any other president yeah. in the history of the United States, close yeah. to 200. He's gotten Mitch McConnell to get through uh, oh. the Senate. But he's hollowed out important agencies like the Department of State. Uh, he's placed uh, acting people in position who have never been confirmed by the Senate. Yeah, and the last time I looked at the Department of State roster, 11 or 12 of the assistant secretaries of state, uh, these were positions that weren't even filled. Yeah. So the deconstruction of the administrative state continues and it allows the national security state and the Homeland Security is the chief domestic department of the national security state because these are the paramilitary forces that are used against American citizens. Uh, they're receiving greater funding, greater appropriations, uh, greater authority at the, the hands of this administration. Yes, yeah, uh, it amazes me how government upside down. How clever it is to create the uh, image of the deep state. Deep state was, you know people working in the government who are doing their jobs, period. And to replace the those people with the, uh, you know, hollowing out that, that state and having a national security state fill it in, it, I don't know, it seems sort of like uh, what they're doing is perhaps intentionally increasing national homeland insecurity to, to see protesters as the enemy, to see the others as the enemy. It amazes me, really. You write that the city of Portland must not become a petri dish for studying the death of democracy. What do you mean by that statement? Well, to me, it attacked an urban center without any uh, authority or consultation with local officials. Now, originally, if it hadn't backfired the way it did, uh, he was going to extend uh, this capability, and he listed four or five other cities, including yes. my hometown of Baltimore, in this list, citing liberal Democratic mayors who are essentially socialists who've let yep. the situation get out of control. So that's why Portland, I think, has to be examined. And frankly, what, what is needed is the same thing that we needed after 9-11. Uh, I know mm. people are somewhat cynical about the nature of commissions, 
but we need some kind of truth and reconciliation commission, the mm. same thing that exists in South Africa, uh, to deal with politics after apartheid or to deal with the East European regimes after the communist governments were overthrown. We have to look at the damage that's been done uh, to the United States by this four-year administration of, of Donald Trump. And a part of it is what, ha is what happened in Portland. Uh, that, in combination with what happened in Washington at Lafayette Square on June uh, the 1st, yes. uh, is the use of military power, domestic military force, against American people, legitimate protesters. You know, when I marched in, in Washington, there was never any concern that there would be a resistance to the protesters. If anything, there was a lot of protection given to the protesters. And some of these protests involved hundreds of thousands. The March on yes. the Pentagon was a couple hundred thousand people yeah. uh, when we crossed uh, mm -hmm. the Potomac. So this, this is far different from what we've seen in any administration. Even Richard Nixon. Oh. Uh, uh, he went up and in the middle of the night, one night he claimed he couldn't sleep. He went remember he went up yep. to the Link, uh, Lincoln Memorial, the yep. Washington Monument had it and it was kind of awkward and it didn't yep. go down very well. But he made an attempt to talk to the protesters. Yep. Uh can you imagine <laughs> Donald Trump doing anything <laughs> uh like this? Well so I this this is different. This is much different. This is different and Lord help us if he gets reelected and there's gonna be some nasty evil manipulation, you know, slowing down the, the mail, using Homeland Security as an excuse to, uh, you know, make Putin smile. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, I just, it's unthinkable, but it could still happen. So it's important to vote. I don't know if there have been, uh, I mean, you mentioned Ron Wyden. There's also Jeff Merkley. There's some people in Congress, not a lot, who have expressed concern about this. But uh, what would you suggest citizens do uh, from this point on? Well, I think the important thing is protecting uh, the mail-in voting. Yes. And the mail-in uh, balloting and make sure there are centers where uh, ballots can be dropped off because these are all the things the Trump administration is fighting. Yeah. And this is what Obama and Holder have really uh, been applying their energies to in terms of uh, the right to vote. Uh, and there was an important decision today that came down from the Supreme Court overturning a Republican challenge. Yeah. I forget which state it was that was trying to limit uh, the use of mail-in uh, balloting. Mm. Uh, in, in a time of a pandemic, this is a national emergency. Yeah. Uh, we saw already what happened in Georgia, where people waited in line uh. five or six hours to vote. We saw what happened in Wisconsin, where mail-in uh, ballots that weren't postmarked were thrown out, uh, that ballots that came in late were not uh, yeah. counted. Uh, it's important that this isn't repeated. And I know in my own area, the people I know, the retired people in my neighborhood, are the ones who man the voting uh, polls uh -huh. today. They're saying because of the pandemic, they've already informed the Board of Elections in Maryland, state of Maryland, that they're not going to be there. So a lot of polling places are going to be closed. Yeah. And all this will slow down the process. So yeah. if people vote eight, if it's a close election, you know, think of Florida in the year yeah. 2000 and what a disaster yeah. that was. Yes. We'll multiply that by about two dozen states, each one being a Florida, each one being invaded by uh, Trump's lawyers. The potential for violence because a 
people in states with open carry laws. Anti-conservatism, homeland insecurity. If people want to read more of your work, Melvin Goodman, it's on Counterpunch. Thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, we will do what we can to keep democracy alive. Thank you. Thank you. Very good being with you. Pleasure was all mine. Freedom, freedom, that's what I want.